A 13-year-old girl named Yang Liu moved from Beijing to Berlin, Germany with her family. As she learned what it meant to be German, she encountered differing social customs and ways of thinking. And to help her process uh, coming into this new culture, she started what she called a visual diary. She started to use pictograms to document some of the differences she was encountering coming from China into Germany. The red side of the, of the pictograms I'll show you represent China, China red, and the blue side is Germany or the West. And like any illustration, this is one person's opinion and her own cultural generalizations. And of course, there are always exceptions to any generalization. But I want you to, be rest, to rest assured, there were no graphic images harmed in the production of these images. <laughs> Let's see the first one. Again, the right is China, the left in her thinking is Germany. It's a view of time, right? Punctuality and a little flexibility. This is a view of the boss. In Germany, the boss is one of the group, just has a different responsibility. But in China, the boss is the big guy. He's the big man, he's the head one. Some of you are thinking, I want to move to China. <laughs> this is a pictograph of queuing, lining up. Notice, <laughs> German's kind of orderly, and if you've been to, to China, please. You know, you got to get in front. I think there's nothing scarier than an older Chinese woman carrying her bag of vegetables heading to the cashier. You, she has no mercy for anyone in her way. <laughs> and this one, this is a perception of our society's view of senior citizens. Now, in what country do you want to grow up old in? That's right. So, and this last pictograph. Here's a picture of friends. But in this, uh, in this picture, she's not contrasting German and Chinese culture, but rather past and modern times. So Yang Lu suggests that in the past, a closer group of friends is what was normative, and today, we have this vast, vast viral network of friends, which is part of modern culture. So for example, I looked up yesterday on Facebook, my friends. You know, you can find that. And I have over 2,000 friends on Facebook. <laughs> what? Think about it. How can I really know 2,000 people? And how many of these 2,000 are really friends? Precious few. Most of these folks are acquaintances and friends of friends. So a British anthropologist by the name of Robin Dunbar came up with a theory about the size of relationships people can actually maintain. His work is called the Dunbar Number, and he suggests that the average person can have 100 to 200 casual friends in their social group. 200 are the more social people, 100 are the folks who are a little less social, but 150 or so is average that we have as casual friends. And close friends, he suggests, number 50. And then he says this is an even smaller group he calls true intimates, and that's about 15 people. These 15 folk are the folks that we go to for sympathy when we need it, the ones that can, we can confide in about most things. And then Dunbar goes on to say that there's five, five people who constitute our closest support group. These are our best friends. They're often family members, it's a, it's a stable group. The size is stable, 
but the number, the people in that group of five can vary, and that's true about the others. The number is stable, 150 is stable, but you can be different people floating into that 150 depending on the circumstance. So that's going inward. Going outward, groups can extend to 500 on an acquaintance level. So we can know each other on an acquaintance level up to about 500 people. And then he suggests that 1,500 is the absolute limit you can, that we can put a name to a face. And if you're like me, you can recognize the faces, but you can't do 1,500 <laughs> names. But I want to give grateful thanks to Professor Dunbar, because he's given Grace Chapel an empirical reason for moving to the campus model. We had to go up and break up our, big, our bigness so that we, like in the cheer song, could know everybody by name. Other researchers have looked into the effect of social media on our relationships. And as you can imagine, this whole online world, which expands our networks and, effect, and provides for more effective collaborations, but also, uh, it also changes things. And Dunbar suggests that even in the online world and in that virtual community that we're part of, 150 still remains the constant number of those that we can really get to know and work with. The thing that keeps face-to-face -face relationships strong is the nature of shared relationships, shared experiences. With face-to-face -face relationships, we can laugh, we can grieve together, we can go to events, we can, uh, we can join in a meal. Duh. We don't need Professor Dunbar's degree from Oxford to tell us this. We bond relationally when we do life together. But Dunbar continues to say that it's inconclusive how social media will change our friendships in the digital age. And it's inconclusive, our kids who are raised as digital natives, how it's going to affect them in the world that's to come. It already appears, however, that social skills are diminishing as online interactions increase. So, in spite of the growing number of virtual connections we may have, my 2,000 Facebook friends, the truth is there's lots of us who suffer from loneliness. Loneliness, that deep desire to know and to be known. And when I'm in real pain, a Facebook comment like a like, or even that new tearful emoticon, it doesn't quite cut it. Does it? Loneliness is that lack of connection with other people. When you're feeling you're missing a bond. Mother Teresa said, the most terrible poverty is loneliness and the feeling of being unloved. And that's why she did her work on the streets of Calcutta, holding people and caring for them as they were perishing because she wanted to help them deal with that awful pain of feeling unloved. So ironically, we're more connected than ever before, and yet we're feeling more alone. A quarter of the people in our nation, that's approximately 80 million Americans, cannot name a single person they feel close to. And there's a local psychiatrist has an office here in Lexington. She's a faculty and author by the name of Amy Banks. And she specializes in treating people with chronic disconnection. She says, chronic disconnection happens to us after years of focusing on individual success and neglecting relationships. 
Interdependence, the whole idea of leaning on one another, is seen as being weak and needy. And so it leads to loneliness and isolation. And that's what we're feeling in our highly digitized culture. Um, some would even call this a public health epidemic of loneliness. And in particular, it happens to affect men. More men than not will feel that they have no one to turn to for emotional support. So honestly, let me ask you, when was the last time you had a meaningful conversation with someone that you felt you were understood? A meaningful conversation where you felt understood. And when was the last time you felt truly connected to another person? Well, it's into this world where folks are desperate for connection and belonging that we introduce the idea of Christian community. What does it mean for us to do life together? I think many of us can recite a pat Christian answer to this question. Biblical communities meet together for prayer, for worship, for Bible study and fellowship. We just had it read to us in Acts 2. But friends, do you and I know what it means to be stubbornly committed to one another? Stubbornly committed to one another. To not walk away in the big or small conflict when the going gets tough. To see each other through the low ebbs and difficulties of our real lives. Because when we are stubbornly committed to each other, we can risk being honest and vulnerable in our relationships. And our entire community benefits as we take relational risks with each other. That's the wonderful fruit of being stubbornly committed to each other. And in this past week, if you've been working on Mizizi and the Roots Challenge, you discover that we've been shaped for service. And that nifty acronym, SHAPE, S-H-A-P-E, says it all. S stands for spiritual gifts, heart for, uh, H for heart, A for abilities, personality, and experience. Spiritual gifts, heart, abilities, personality, experience. This makes us who we are. And God created us uniquely for service. And last week, on many of our campuses, we had a service fair in our lobbies, and it gave you opportunities to see how you might pursue places to serve and to minister in and outside of Grace Chapel. And Watertown's campus is having that after today's service. But in the week ahead, we're going to be looking at body parts. I nicknamed week eight in Mizizi, NCIS Grace Chapel. Get it? Body parts. We're going to be looking at body parts. Get it? Yeah. So in the week ahead, we get to study living in community and becoming members of one another as God's family. And that's our jumping off point for this morning. What can this church in Acts show us about true community, the kind of life together that God would like us to have so that we can experience life in the full? What does this early church show us about being stubbornly committed to one another? Well, there's a fascinatingly honest story in Acts 5 that, quite frankly, is one of those passages that feels like if it had a different ending, it would be a lot more family-friendly. It's the story of Ananias and Sapphira. They were early adapters to the Christian message, and they joined this early church community. 
And just before he goes on to tell their story, Luke, as the author of Acts, describes the community life of the early church. He did it before in Acts chapter two, and he chooses to do it again in Acts chapter four, 32 to 35. And he talks about the characteristics of a spirit-filled community. And here's Eugene Peterson's translation of this passage from Acts 4.32. The whole congregation of believers was united as one. One heart, one mind. They didn't even claim ownership of their own possessions. No one said, this is mine, you can't have it. They shared everything. When I was a student and uh, studying Chinese language and doing things, um, China was very communist and more outwardly communist in the, in the theoretical sense than it is today. And I remember reading this and I said, wow, it sounds like communism because they're sharing everything. But in the best sense, communism is biblical in the idea that when somebody has a need, we jump in and help them. And so Eugene's reminds, this passage reminds us of that. And it's clear at this time that the Holy Spirit was doing an extraordinary work. The people had an intense sense of responsibility for one another, and they desired to share all that they had. They shared everything they owned. And no one legislated that they needed to do this. They did it spontaneously from the overflow of God's love in their hearts. And God granted to this community great grace. Well, in the early 80s, shortly after China first opened out to outside visitors, I led a group of Chinese Americans involved with InterVarsity, uh, my former employer, on a mission trip. We went to China in part to learn about Chinese life and culture. We went in part to visit family. We were all Chinese Americans. And we went in part to encourage house church leaders who were still underground in those days. It was at the invitation of a veteran missionary and IV staff worker, a man named David Aidney. And David Aidney said, uh, British, he was a British chap and he helped found China into varsity. Mr. Aidney said that Chinese people would be fascinated by their American-born Chinese ABC counterparts. So I said, okay, we'll be exhibit A, we'll go. <laughs> so we went. And we toured. And in those days, you could only buy a China travel service tour and you went to almost like seven cities in seven days. It was nuts. But what we brought with us is that we brought in Bibles, we brought in tape cassettes and tape players. This is technology of the past. And we brought in some Bible reference materials. We actually brought what they called a simple portable uh, seminary. And so after these long days of touring, the official tour that we had to do from pretty much eight to eight, um, some of us, a small group of us, would get in to some public conveyance, some, either a taxi or a bus, and we, we would go find a local group of believers, their addresses that we had with us. We would join these brothers and sisters, we would pray with them, and we would give them some of the uh, literature that we had, we would try to encourage them, we would sing a hymn, and we would leave. In one of these cities, I met a pastor who spent nearly 30 years in prison. And slowly over those years of imprisonment, and separation, his wife and his only son, um, they decided to denounce him. He said to us, who can blame them? My imprisonment made life for them so very hard. In this jail, this brother was physically tortured. 
They told us they put steel manacles around his arms and they would come and they would beat it right there on his wrist and they would wait for him to pass out. They would say, just recant your belief in Jesus and you can go free and you can go back to your wife and to your son. Yet in God's mercy, the brother was able to stand firm. So 30 years later, when he's released, he had his faith, but he had no home and no family to return to. Hearing of his situation, the local believers offered him to come and live with them. Their home was small. Chinese homes aren't, aren't large. It was just enough space for their family. And at that time in China, food wasn't abundant either. They had food coupons that they used to get um, additional food for, for, their, for their health. But nonetheless, this Christian family offered this imprisoned pastor a home, a family, food, and shelter. And in return, this pastor studied, he cared for this house church meeting secretly there, and he taught them the apostles' teaching. This house church in China certainly knew what it meant to be stubbornly committed to each other, don't you think? And as Luke wrote, those who believe were of one heart and soul. There was not a needy person among them. Luke goes on in this passage to introduce us to Barnabas in Acts 4, 32 and 37. Barnabas is, represent, is presented to us as an example of a brother who freely shared and gave of the proceeds of a real estate transaction to the apostles, no strings attached. He gave generously and freely. It says that he had a plot of land, he sold it, and then he brought the money and gave it to the, to the apostles. He's a perfect example of the life together that we've read about. And it's true then as it's true today. What you do with your money and your possessions declares loudly what kind of community you are. What you do with your money and your possessions declares loudly what kind of community we are. This community was of one heart and mind. They agreed to see each other's needs as their own. Full stop. So Barnabas, the son of encouragement, he's this positive example and this principle of genuine heartfelt giving. And then we meet Ananias and Sapphira. They're a fascinating study of contrasts. From them, we learn how not to give. We're told a man named Ananias and Sapphira also sold some land. He kept part of the money for himself. Sapphira knew he had kept it. He brought the rest of it and put it down at the apostles' feet. So initially, it looks like Barnabas and Ananias did the same thing. They both had real estate, they both sold it, and they both brought the proceeds of their sale to the apostles. The difference, though, is that Barnabas brought all the sale money, while Ananias only bought a portion, pretending he had given he was giving the whole thing. So he was pretending that he was giving the whole lump, but he only bought a portion. So what's wrong? What's wrong with this picture? He's a generous guy, right? It's their land, Ananias and Sapphira. They have land, fair and square. The proceeds from any sale belongs to us, right, the owners. Um, they didn't have to sell the land, uh, but, and they didn't have to give the money to the apostles. So but what's the problem here? Luke writes in verse 2, that Ananias was keeping back or misappropriating some of the proceeds. 
And through Luke's choice of verbs, we can assume that before this real estate deal, Ananias and Sapphira had entered into some kind of contract to give the church the total amount raised. So when they only brought a portion, they were essentially embezzling the church. Peter writes that the couple lacked integrity. He points out that they were hypocrites. They were liars. It was deliberate. It was a planned gift, and they gave a partial transaction. But Ananias and Sapphira, they're a lot like me, maybe you. They wanted the credit. They wanted the prestige. They wanted the esteem of the church to be on them. Uh, but they didn't want the inconvenience. They wanted to give, not so much to relieve the needs of the poor, but in order to look good. Chinese folk call it gaining face. They wanted the face of this public gift. Peter continues his talking with Ananias, and it's obvious. Ananias didn't fool God, although he tried. And his sin was not just an attempt to deceive the elders of the church, but his, his sin was that he attempted to, to deceive God himself. The passage goes on. You haven't just lied to people, you've also lied to God. And when Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. All who heard what had happened were filled with fear. And some men came and wrapped up his body. They carried him out and buried him. This is why this passage is not family friendly. <laughs> God's judgment fell on Ananias, and he offended the community as well as sinned against God. And the people, of course, were fearful. They were afraid of God's holiness and his judgment. Uh, three hours later, we read, ignorant of her husband's death, Sapphira comes to Peter. And Peter gives her a chance to tell her side of the story and maybe to repent. And um, so he asks her, how much uh, did you receive for your land? But she ends up implicating herself. And she, too, falls dead. It seems severe, doesn't it? You know, sure they sinned, uh, sure they reneged on a promise. Um, well, you know, at least they had integrity as a couple. They worked on it together. Um, <laughs> You know, um, yeah, they were hypocritical. Uh, they were bringing an offering. I mean, it was some money, right? It could help people who were poor. Uh, there were needs in the community that could be met by this money. Uh, isn't God just a little bit overreacting here? You know, like bad day, a little over-the-top God. <laughs> Maybe a public scolding, a little confession. Wouldn't that better fit the crime? But death, death of both husband and wife... So I don't know. The punishment feels overly severe. The passage points to a form of divine judgment, and I confess I don't understand it fully. The key issue seems to be the couple's lie, their deception. When you think about lying, it abuses our ability to express who we are, what we think and what we feel. It declares instead what we don't like and will pretend what we want to be. So think of yourself when you lie. You're pretending something. You know, oh, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, I did it. Yeah, yeah, I'm pretending. I'm trying to present an alternate reality to what actually happened. And their lie was plenty serious. It wasn't because it was directed primarily to Peter, an elder of the church, but rather their lie was directed to the Holy Spirit 
and against God. And brothers and sisters, God hates hypocrisy. He hates hypocrisy. And their sin ended up being against the church community and the people of God. And falsehood ruins genuine fellowship. Falsehood ruins genuine fellowship. So since I'm meddling, what does this mean for us here at Grace Chapel when we belong to one another as believers in Christ? What does this mean for us to belong to one another? Well, I think this passage reminds us very soberly that there are consequences to our lying, to our hypocrisy, and to our pretending and dishonesty with God and with one another. Following Jesus is serious business. It's a serious business. And our lying and hypocrisy, lifestyle choices that take us away from God's, God's good purposes for our lives, it doesn't just affect me and us, it affects our community and our life together. Recently, I heard of two pastors serving two different congregations who did not uh, fulfill their marital vows. So do you think those circumstances had a strong impact only on that, those couples and their immediate family? Do you think the, the implications were only to them? Not. There are ripples of their sin that went throughout their churches, and it went beyond their churches to the churches that knew their churches and to other places, and in one case, around the world. We know that Ananias and Sapphira's lie incurred God's judgment and had an incredibly sobering impact on the church. By this time, the whole church, and in fact, everyone who heard of these things, had a healthy respect for God. They knew God was not to be trifled with. Do you all remember the British petroleum oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico in 2010? Do you remember seeing those pictures of this gushing thing underwater, and it was just billowing, billowing gallons and gallons and, and of oil that kept spewing into the, the Gulf of Mexico? And do you remember seeing after the after it, uh, after effects that you would see globules of uh, of petroleum landing on the beaches on the west coast, east coast, no, west coast of, of Florida? And remember the birds and, you know, the dawn advertisement that cleaned them up? <laughs> well, the cleaning of that oil spill actually was remarkably helped naturally by oil-eating microbes, bacteria that ate 200,000 tons of that oil spill and assisted naturally in the cleanup. Did you know that? Well, a blogger named Mandy Smith wrote about this spill and suggests that the church is like this bacteria. In fact, the church's transformative power is molecular. So hang with me. As moms gather in mom-to-mom, -mom, as you are there gasping for some kind of adult conversation, sharing about how to love your in-laws in a way that honors and reflects Jesus, or how to make friends with a neighbor who hasn't shown interest, or how to respond to the events in the news cycle that seem to make our world scarier and scarier for the little one that you're bouncing on your lap. Your life together as moms and as Jesus' daughters allows you to soak up some of the oil spill. 
As you meet in life communities, in roots groups, in men's gatherings, in your joy studies, in grief share, in celebrate recovery, in student house groups, the informal groups and formal groups that you do life together with one another in, when you risk honesty and you share vulnerably, you're gobbling up some of the oil spill, one microbe at a time. Every laugh, every tear, every prayer, every meal eaten, car lent, food pantry item distributed, refugee taught to ride the tea, yard raked for a senior, silent time sitting together in the hospital, waiting for yet another test result. All of these things are expressions of true friendship. Each gives us a better sense of what it means to live like Jesus in our here and now. And let's be real friends. No one is going to write a headline about you doing that. Whether you be serving in the nursery, or meeting in your living room, or at Starbucks, or at a nursing home, or find yourself at Children's. But let's be a real church where we are gobbling up the oil spill, one bacteria at a time. You see, in Jesus' day, the Roman Empire was what made the front page news. It was strong, it was politically mighty, economically strong. Uh, we would have known the top leaders of the Roman Empire by name, and we would hear about how the Pax Romana was conquering barbarian peoples left and right. They were expanding their reach. It would seem to us, living in those days, that Rome was invincible. At the same time, in this Pax Romana, the church was almost invisible. It was this ragtag group of misfits meeting in homes, eating and praying and serving their neighbors together. And yet, this seemingly insignificant, tiny thing has outlived the immense power of the Roman Empire. So would it be nice for genuine Christ followers to lead more institutions and wield more obvious power in society? Would it be nice to have greater influence in media, government, and business? Perhaps. But perhaps it's our organic nature that's the church's true, transformative, unstoppable power. Our superpower is this organic nature. The church is the bacteria and the microbes, and we're eating up the oil spill of the broken world around us. The Jesus movement, which began in the Gospels and in the Book of Acts, didn't have a headquarters. It didn't have a corporate structure. It didn't have an org chart. It didn't have a business plan. It was organic, and it was relational, and it wasn't predictable. The Christian movement not only survived persecution in Rome, but it flourished around the globe, on every continent. Why? Because it exists in human hearts. It exists in human hearts. It's in relationship with God and humanity. And it's in relationship with me to you, you to your neighbor, us to one another. The spirit of the living God looks for every chance to move. And he flourishes when there's opportunity. And it redirects when there's not. So Jesus, he also spoke of the kingdom of God being like yeast. He promised that his way was small, almost undetectable, but was powerfully working nonetheless in many small ways to make a big difference. 
So over here, you've been wondering what I'm going to do. So all those cooking shows? Don't worry, I won't. <laughs> But I do have some bowls of yeast. Uh, well, rather, I have two bowls of dough. You almost have to wear super goggles. It was really blowing up. It hasn't. But this one's been rising for a while. And this little guy is where it starts. Right? It starts a little bit smaller. And eventually, it becomes this bigger thing. And eventually, if you were here, you could smell it. Um, it would grow, and it would expand, and you'd have to punch it down a few times, and then you kind of stick it in the oven, and da-da-da-da, you get bread. I'm so scared of yeast that I've never tried to really make bread, because it's living. The living thing is here. It's these little tiny granules of yeast. Tiny, small things. It's um, plant-like organisms, and when they're active with something to eat, which could be sugar, or flour, or the gluten, in, or the flour, um, they start to bubble, and they form carbon dioxide. And that's the bubbling, the carbon dioxide, that makes the bread rise, right? You bakers all know this. And it's to be respected. Uh, it needs coddling, it needs the right temperature and the right situation, it needs a lot of love, it does well with Mozart. So I'm inviting you, brothers and sisters, today to be like yeast and to bubble up. I'm inviting you today, my brothers and sisters, to be like the bacteria, to whack away at the oil spill of our broken world. And I'm encouraging us to do it. The characteristic I'd like us to pursue is to be stubborn and to stick with one another as we do the work of God's kingdom, to be stubborn and stick with one another. Let's be people who are willing to risk something in our relating to each other. So perhaps a, risk, a relational risk could be that wonderful question we all ask each other in passing. How are you? I just did that to somebody. How are you? I said, fine. Well, I wasn't fine. You know, I've just come in from, from California on a red eye. The sermon wasn't written. I've kept the translators waking. Slides weren't prepared. I wasn't fine, but I said, fine, right? So, so let's take a risk. When the time is right and the opportunity is genuine, can you say something that's genuine instead of just the trite, I'm fine? Well, okay, thanks. Can we say something like, I'm really scared. I'm terrifically scared because I don't know what to do, and I'm so out of control right now. You take the relational risk. Or maybe, I have another slide here. It's taking the risk of inviting the odd, harder-to-love person in our group and including them into our circle of belonging. Uh, will you take the risk to say, here, why don't you take the seat beside me? My name's Jeanette. Maybe The risk for you is staying around and fighting fear in a conflict you find yourself embroiled in. It's really easy to leave. It's our consumer culture. I don't like you, I'm going to go away. Uh, God, we say it Christianly, God told me to go to another church, or God told me to go elsewhere, or he told me to go to another ministry, you know, all this sort of stuff. But isn't it a ton tougher and a lot more honest to swallow hard and say, Okay, I guess we disagree. Um, can we try to work it out? Can we try to work it out? How many times have we fled that conflict to avoid, um, to avoid going deeper, 
Because if we can work it through, it's, it's a really profound change for us and for our friend. Maybe the risk is to share about how tough it is for you right now. Maybe you're facing your parents aging. Maybe you're facing your, your spouse's overcommitment to their career. Maybe you're facing the whole thing of losing a job to a young millennial who can get paid a lot less than you. Maybe the risk is sharing about the passing of someone you love, or maybe even sharing some of the personal questions you have about God when you're perceived as a leader of the church. So sisters and brothers, can I invite you to take a relational risk, to take off the mask, and to share vulnerably and honestly about something that means something to you? Will you be willing to take a risk, to be genuine, to share something close to your heart where you really need for God to show up? You may be the very first person to be this honest and vulnerable in any of the teams or groups or Bible studies that you've been part of since the days of the American Revolution. But will you do it for Jesus' sake? There is something about being a New Englander that makes us very close and reserved. There is something about our veneer of we got it okay and I got it under control. Thank you very much. Uh, but the Bible doesn't allow us to hide behind our cultural stereotype or our regional uh, perceptions. Will you take the risk to be willing to share something close to your heart, a relational risk? And will you risk traveling in the community of faith here by yourself or your spouse and move from this idea of rugged individualism on the left to more of a biblical community where you become, we become interdependent, choosing to share life together with others? So church, let's be the microbes God can use to clean up the oil spill of our needy world. And church, let's be the yeast of our life together and uh, take risks to lead by example so the kingdom of God can grow and expand here in Grace Chapel on all of our campuses and all the places that get this video feed, but also in God's kingdom which is expands around the world. Um, it can feel overwhelming to be the first person to take this relational risk or to be stubbornly committed to one another, but we can do it. We can do it together. We don't do it alone. We join others on our other campuses, and we join others around the globe. When we are stubbornly committed to one another, we can risk being honest and vulnerable in our relationships. And the whole church as a community rises like yeast raises a loaf of bread. And we get to eat up the oil spill hurting of our hurting world, one bacteria at a time. But before any of this happens, you and me, we have to choose to do our part. We got to choose to do our part. But know this, the church of God is at work. It's at work locally it's at work regionally, it's at work nationally, it's at work globally. This kingdom purpose of God has no end. At the end, he will establish his kingdom. And at the end, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. It's just that we get an opportunity to be more a part of it now. So don't give up that invitation, friends. Jump in. Let's be that kind of stubbornly committed community. 
loving, caring, sacrificing, serving one another with all that we got, and watch him transform us as we transform the world. God bless you as you do it, and let's pray together. We're grateful to you, Lord Jesus, for the power of your word. We're grateful to you, Lord Jesus, uh, for the story of Ananias and Sapphira, for how um, their example teaches us about what it means to follow hard after you. I thank you that following you is, is serious, um, but I also thank you that following you is life-giving. It changes us and allows us to become like you. It allows us to experience uh, life in the full, to see joy and to be able to know more about the world that you've created for us. So help us, Father, to be a bacteria eating up the oil spill. Help us to be yeast leavening the lump. Help us to love one another radically, honestly, vulnerably, sacrificially uh, for the praise of your glory and for the honor of your name. We pray all these things so that your name would be honored and magnified and that your will would be done on earth as it's already done in heaven. In Jesus' name we ask all these things. Amen.